All right. Good morning. Thank you all for coming this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings of a new day and the opportunity to study your word and grow in our faith. We pray that you would bless us with your Holy Spirit so that we would have ears to hear what you have to teach us. We pray this in your Son's most holy name. Amen. So just a bit of housekeeping. Uh, the schedule says this week and next week and then the following week, the, thir- the 19th, we're going to finish up next week. No Bible study on the 19th. Um, for a couple of reasons. One is we kinda, we've kind of talked about basically all the themes in the book at this point, and so no point in, in dragging it out too long. But then also the 19th gets a little bit close to the holidays when everybody's busy. So I'm very glad you're all here this morning. I was afraid that Thanksgiving would still be having, still be taking its toll on everybody. So let's do this. Um, any questions? Carol. Not a question, but an ad. Okay. Um, next week, after Bible class, all of you that can come downstairs and help will be greatly loved. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's, that's great. Everybody wants some love. That's good. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah. So next week, that's and it, it's Friday evening that that we that the thing the thing starts to happen. Last minute crunch. Fantastic. Thanks for thanks for making that happen, Carol. And please help it if you can. Anything else? Um, do you remember what's going on in the book at this point? Because I don't. Let's see. Chapter thirty-two is where we. Um, chapter thirty-two is where we're starting today. And like you know, one of the interesting things that happens. I think this is what makes what makes Jennifer a really good writer is that she's um, she talks about things for a little bit and then she comes back to them later. Themes, subjects, as she's telling her story. And so, in some ways, we've sort of. We've sort of dealt with a lot of the things um, that she's uh, that are sort of coming to a conclusion right now, um, and so the the main thrust is just dealing with the narrative, dealing with the story, finding out what's going on in the story, where things are going to land for her. Um, so let's just jump right in, chapter thirty-two. Let's see. Let's figure out what happened just before chapter thirty-two. Um, they find out they're pregnant again, right? The, for the for the third time, and this is this causes you know a real struggle for her because the doctor had prescribed Coumadin. Um, she was fortunately done with her with her treatment of Coumadin. So, chapter thirty two. Uh, what happens in chapter thirty two? Well, she can't afford the Lebanon. That's right. But then the opportunity for health insurance with a possible job change. That's right, yeah. And that's, that's the thing that, sort of, that, that really caught my attention. I put, put down a quotation from page 205. Um, there's, this, there's this sort of radical change which takes place in her husband, Joe. I guess striking, the, the change that takes place in him. He says on page 205, I'm saying that I don't think it's where God wants us right now. So in terms of running this business, having this big new client, the potential for having you know, the house in Terrytown, all their dreams coming true. I don't think it's where God wants us right now. I no longer see the point in working myself to death so that I can become rich and powerful, which you know, up to this point had been 
the defining characteristic of his life because he grew up in poverty and this is what he's been after all along, being his own boss, running the show, um, having security, real financial security, right? These are the things that he's aiming at. And now all of a sudden he says um, that I, I, I no longer see the point in working myself to death so I can become rich and powerful. So what do you think about that? How does that strike you? What are your, what are your thoughts? Uh, Krista, yes. I don't want to defend uh, uh, anybody, but I think I found it a little bit uh, irresponsible okay. that she uh, was pregnant again. Uh -huh. At first, um, the doctor uh, 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 discouraged her, and uh, uh, the whole circumstances around her, you know, um, I think uh, I thought a little bit uh, she, she is pushing. Uh, yeah. Okay, right, and, and, and so, I mean, we can talk about this in a broader sense, too. Um, you know, Joe is interested in, in giving up the business, the, the financial security, in some sense, for, for a more stable income, but, um, you know, an income which doesn't, uh, you know, which, is, which provides less for his family, right? Um, so, so let's talk about this a little bit. Um, let's talk about responsibility. Um, are they being irresponsible? What do you think? We don't know. Yeah. So go ahead. What are your thoughts? Carol. I think that uh, if I could characterize the, the main takeaway from, from these chapters, I think it has exactly to do with that. Um, it's, it, all of the issues that come up boil down in some sense to a question of um, how, you're make, how they're making decisions, what's governing their decisions. Um, and even on a more basic level, it's the question of whether they think that their decision-making um, is the final is the, is the final step in determining the outcome of their life, right? So uh, if I make this decision, everything's going to be okay. If I, make, if I make this decision, this is what's going to happen, right? In some sense, Joe is abandoning that, that notion of autonomy in his life, right? He's saying, um, I, I, don't need to, I don't need to be the master of every outcome because, um, because there are more important things than achieving wealth and power, right? Um, there are more important things, including for him, trusting in God, right? And, and having that inform your decision-making is, is important for him. Shirley? But he's also come to the realization that God is always there. Right. And that, that, deep, that there is a deeper power within that maybe I should allow to come into my life and govern. Right, right. And I think, I think that that's, that's the basic thing that's going on here is this fundamental change in, change in attitude. And this is true, I mean, this is something that, that has to be dealt with in, every, in everybody's life, where no matter what kind of things you deal with. And, and we can fall prey easily to the idea that, I think the best way to characterize it is that if you think that your decisions are going to determine the outcomes, then you're mistaken. So for one thing, you're mistaken. You're going to be disappointed when it doesn't happen. 
and you're setting yourself up as God, right? Um, it doesn't mean that we don't make sound decisions, that we don't use our baptized reason to make good decisions, but um, we don't idolize our reason. We don't idolize our decision-making, okay? Um, does, that, does that make sense? I think, and I think that we really see that highlighted here. That's, what's, that's, that's one of the changes that's going on. Donna. Yeah, he, he says what God wants, right. not what I want, right. or what she wants, right. or anybody else wants. Exactly. And, and now one of the interesting things, I, I especially was interested in this quotation. I'm saying that I don't think it's where God wants us right now. And there, there are sort of two ways you can interpret that phrase, right? So on the one hand, you can say to yourself, well, I think that God... Um, has given me a particular special revelation of where I should be right now. And that's always a little bit tricky because um, sometimes it's indigestion, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's just you've, you've reasoned things out and, and it makes sense. Um, but what, what you can say with certainty in terms of like where God wants you to be right now is he wants you to be trusting in him, right? He wants you to be faithful to him. And if you find yourself in a position where... Um, where you are is counter to that, then of course he doesn't want you there, right? Of course he wants you somewhere else, right? And, and you can say that with certainty. Um, there's no, there's no, if you, if, you, if you sort of count on your feelings to govern whether or not you are where God wants you to be, then um, it, that can change in an instant, right? Yeah. Okay. And, 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 and when I first read it, I got, I got really nervous because I felt like, I felt like Job might be saying, he might be acting on a whim. He might be saying, oh, let's just give it all up. We can, we can just do this because it feels great right now. Well, if, it, if he's counting on that great feeling about giving everything up and, and, and you know, uh, trusting in God, if he's counting on that great feeling to be the governing factor, it's going to go away, right? As soon as the rubber hits the road, as soon as, you know, uh, something falls through, he loses his job, they have to live with her, her mother for, you know, the rest of their lives, it's not going to be so great anymore, Right? Um, but I, 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 the more I read it, the more optimistic I was that, you know, he's been thinking about this very carefully. He's been, he's been coming to this conclusion. Penny. And, and I've seen Joe is more of a risk taker at this point in, in his spiritual relationship. Right. Which, I mean, that's kind of a man-woman thing. You know, like Jennifer's not willing yet to let go of something she's got in her hand. Right. Let it go. But he's already to let go and let God. I wish we had Joe's story. I do, too. Yeah. I really do. <laughs> We're slugging through stuff, and then suddenly he's like a year down the road. Exactly. And he's like, well, how did you get there? <laughs> yeah, so. and that's, that's been a theme, yeah. It's been, it punc- he, we're punc- always punctuated by these things that we find out he's done. Like he shows up to church with uh, the manuscripts from the ancient liturgy, right? Marilyn. Right. Right, which creates other problems for her, well, but yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. Does, but it was just interesting to see how God took that, you know, just kind of testing God. Mm-hmm. You know, just, okay, try me. I'll show you who I am. Right, right. It's just interesting to see how she reacted. Yeah, let's, let's go, go ahead, Krista. But, but it's, it's a little bit further. When they saw the house, yeah. and uh, <clears throat> they, um, she, uh, she doesn't know how to furnish it. Right. And now everything came, uh, came about. Everything came about, yeah. I thought it was wonderful, too. But I thought that um, 
your next uh, next sentence was how about a mother who is um, who is um, in a camp and she doesn't have anything that she was thinking of others too that yeah. but, uh, when we pray for something it perhaps it doesn't come right now yeah that's great. Let, let's hang on to that thought. We'll get there in a couple of quotations. But let's 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 first go to skip the next the second quotation. Go to the third quotation. This is this is where we hear. This is on page two hundred twelve. This is where we hear Jen describing once again, sort of this inner battle that she has going on um, about. And this is this is she talks about her desire here, which is I think it, she articulates it very well. Um, she says, page 212, a rush of desire. So she's standing outside the house in Terrytown, right? She drove 40 minutes out of her way, one way to, to go see it. A rush of desire surged through me, my body reacting physically like a starving man beholding a thick cut of freshly grilled steak. I admitted it. I admitted it to myself, to God, that I wanted this, and I wanted it more than I wanted anything else. It was stupid, and I knew it. If I thought God existed, I should be ambivalent about the house and desire nothing more than for my soul to be in tune with the source of all goodness now and forever. But if God came down and gave me the choice right now, the house and the parties or divine unity and deep inner peace, I'd take the house. I knew it was the wrong answer. In a way, in a way, I did want to want God more than all of this. This, I think, is a great, another great articulation of what exactly we remember the discussion a couple weeks ago about what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies, right? So here she's finding out that, it's the, that her reason is, the, is, the, is riding on the elephant of her desire, and, the reason, and reason can't control it, right? She knows, she knows um, that if she's going to be consistent about what she says about God, then she ought to feel a certain way. Her heart ought to love certain things, but she doesn't, right? Which then, um, that's the bondage of the will. That's the bondage that we find ourselves in as fallen humans, right? Um, and that's why the gospel is more than just um, agreeing that God exists, which even the demons agree to, or even just, or even agreeing that Jesus died on the cross to forgive sins, right? Even that's not the gospel, uh, because even the, again, the demons confess that, right? It is, the, the gospel is the application of Jesus' love to the sinner individually, Right in a way that uh, that uh, engenders trust, engenders faith. Right, and that doesn't happen once again by just sort of thinking it through, by saying, "Well, yes, here's premise A, here's premise B, therefore conclusion C, I'm a Christian." That's not. It doesn't. It, that's not. That's not. That's not trust. That's a component of trust, agreeing to things that God says, but agreeing in a way that um, is from the heart, that comes from faith. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's when that's the Holy Spirit reforming our hearts, reforming, con- converting our wills to be in line with, with what God's will is. Holly. That's a it's a great question. Um, there's, we'll have something to say about this. I got John 9 printed out in here, and I want to talk about that a little bit more then. But one of the answers is, and, the, and of course it's a frustrating answer, is, is because God knows how to do it best for you, right? So on the one hand, it's frustrating because that means that we have to sort of um, forget about how we think it would be best ordered in our lives. But on the other hand, it is a great comfort because it means that 
even when we're despairing, even when we feel like things aren't happening in a timely manner, um, we know that it's God's time, right? And um, that's a trial for that's a trial of a test of our faith. It really is. Um, but again, uh, it's those it is it's those trials, it's those tests that are specifically designed by God to increase our faith, to increase our trust in Him. Um, so when it's ta- when when you know when um, contentment is or patience or you know loving your neighbor when these things are when they feel like they're out of reach when they feel like they're impossible it's it's exactly that feeling that struggle against it which is which is evidence that the holy spirit is working on you right because and that, and that's why her last sentence is so telling i did want to want god more than all of this right so she wouldn't she wouldn't even want it on that second level if it wasn't if it wasn't working on her already Right? If God wasn't after her, she would say, forget about it, right? Okay. Any questions? Ellen. Not a question, really, just a comment. That it seems to me that Jennifer's struggle and ours repeatedly is to let go of the illusion of control. Yeah, absolutely, right. Living in the faith, we just continually are confronted with situations where we have to let go of that illusion. Right. Right, exactly. Yep, yep. Yeah, and and that and the the tricky thing, of course, is that it's not always in so many words that 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 hits home. Like you could say to somebody who's struggling, you could say, "Just give it up to God," <laughs> and and they might want to just smack you upside the head. Right? It's not. It's not. Uh, that's not the way it works. Um, those lessons are not always learned by by you know that's those kind of conversations. Sometimes, and, and in her case. Like it, it's to me, it's remarkable that Joe doesn't, that Joe is so patient, right? Because he's obviously um, come to conclusions about things and feels comfortable taking these risks in a way that she isn't. And he's been like this all along. Remember, he said long ago, he said, "You'll get over that atheism eventually," right? Um, so he's got this, he's got this patience, um, which is a great, a great example to us, you know. Of, um, but I think since he's married. Right, so he can have some confidence. He's gonna—he's spending all this time with her, right? He has more patience than before. That's true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Let's uh, let's go to the next quotation. Um, I forget what this is about. Okay. Here we go. This is the this is the next part about thinking about her neighbor and and facing. So so she comes to the conclusion that God answers her prayers, right? She can't. She. I mean, things things pan out for her in a way that, um, you know. She, she knows, she realizes that she didn't have anything to do with this, right? Uh, whether, it was, whether it was like supernatural, divine, um, rearranging the physics of the universe to, to uh, you know, that kind of a miracle, or God simply ordaining the circumstances so that she would have all these great things happen to her. Nonetheless, she concludes, this is from God, but a problem still remains. She says, I closed the book and wondered how I was supposed to believe that any of this ever happened, that any answered prayer was an act of God and not just beneficent coincidence, when it was so infuriatingly inconsistent. If God was the one behind the $30 copay in the house and the refrigerator and the furnishings, that was great for me, but what about the woman in Guatemala who didn't have access to the medicine she needed at any price? What about the mother in the Congo who did not have food, let alone a refrigerator? So, uh, so what's going on here? Can you summarize her struggle? 
She, well, because she feels guilty. That's interesting. Yeah, Nancy. Yeah, but also, you know, you, you want to think God is just, and so if he answers my prayer, why shouldn't he answer this guy's prayer? Right. 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 And in some sense, she feels so. She feels guilty. She feels haphazard. She says, "If if somehow I'm deserving of these benefit, these blessings, then certainly that those people are deserving of them. And if God was, yeah, God was just, then He would give it to them and not to me, or give it to them and me. But th- this must, therefore, this must be just be some sort of coincidence." Holly. Right. They don't need more than that. Right. Which. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And we, we hear this from her, uh, her um, housekeeper, Irma, right? So the next quotation. Let's listen to this. This is, says exactly what she said. Uh, Irma wasn't flustered by the question. She says, Life is hard. Sometimes things will be good, but often they won't. She chuckled at the last sentence with a certain amusement at life that carried the protection of cynicism, we had all the, but had all the vulnerability of hope. Things are easy now. Maybe they won't be tomorrow. We don't know. But it's all okay if you have God. She hadn't understood my question, or I didn't understand her, or something. I tried again. If the children were cold, wouldn't thicker blankets be a better answered prayer, thicker than, better than the, the felt from the pool tables, remember? I turned to her just as a gentle smile warmed her entire face. It wasn't only for the cold. The answered prayer was that they knew God was there. So, and that is, that is a really hard thing to sort of um, wrap your mind around, that something which to you might seem like a curse, or something to you, which to you might seem like God's abandonment, might actually to, to that person in that situation seem like the, the, a light of hope. Nancy. I heard this really great testimony from a Ghanaian lady who was, well, essentially kidnapped by her aunt, um, taken away from her mother. I mean, you have to know Africa to understand it. But and in any case, as a little kid, and there were a few times when she really, oh, she so much wanted to have red shoes or something to go to school and all this. And her mother would come once a year and visit her and really brought these things. And the thing is, she didn't, she wasn't taken out of this really bad situation and some pretty horrible things happened to her in her life. But it's like God touches people just so they know he's there and give them the hope to continue. You know, and I think that he has to respond to us within the context of our society, of our culture. And if you are, you know, if everybody in your community is, is without, you know, a refrigerator. Right. He's not going to plop one down in your kitchen. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that he, he responds to us kind of also in the context of where we're living and what the expectations are, mm-hmm. but but still he, he can speak to each one of us in, in a, a personal way just to show he's there and he loves us. Right, right, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Um, so, and, and this this is a, uh, for her it's a great lesson, and for us too, about um, about not being sort of closed in on our, on our circumstances, not, not, not thinking that that the life that the lives that we live are the way that is the way that life ought to be for everybody, or that somehow, um, you know, the things that we the, the way that we live life is the best possible way. Um, no, living living life the best possible way is living life trusting in trusting in God. Right. So you trust in God's promises to 
um, provide your daily bread and care for your soul. And, um, and that's the best possible way to live. It's not, you know, your best possible life now, get, have success in your career, have um, a great house and a great car. Those aren't things that, um, that even uh, all people aspire to, right? But that doesn't mean that somehow their life is less worthy. And it, it raises the question, it raises the very interesting question of, um, like, of quality of life, right? So a big question that um, sociologists and economists uh, try to answer is, uh, you know, how do you measure quality of life? And uh, how, how does quality of life compare from one nation to another? And what can we do to equalize quality of life? Well, uh, you know, the, the answer to the question of what is quality of life, or what makes life have quality, is not obvious to most people, right? It's not obvious. Um, interestingly, research, you know, more and more shows that, and, and, and we know this, we, can, we know this from experience, but we, we, it's again one of those things about your intellect and your, your passions getting confused. We know that, like, having things doesn't make you happy, right? In fact, research shows that giving things away makes you happier than having things, right? Giving, so if you want to be happy, give your things away. Now, it's hard to do, right? Because we, we want to think that uh, we'll be happier if we have them. We, that's, that's, that's the way our mind is working. Um, anyway, it, it, all of this shows, it goes to show that, that when, um, when you have answers that are coming from God and, and his word, and answers that are governed, and, and, and answers to questions about life that are, that are governed by the faith, it requires a dramatic reorientation, right? It requires sort of an abandonment of your former way of thinking. And it's not, it's not just in an instant either. Like, this is the exercise of the Christian life. This is why we, why we engage in disciplines, why we go to church regularly, why we, why we pray and why we tithe. We do these things because we're, we're being formed, we're being shaped um, to something different than we were before. And it's, it's not easy, it takes time, it's slow, it's slow going, and it's ongoing in this life. And that's the other great thing that, one of the other great things that she talks about, I think it's in, in the next section, well, I'm going to steal it from Pastor Nelson. It has to do with um, how, she, how she resolves this issue finally, this issue of suffering. And she says, she, she reorients herself and says, thinking about the last day, this is pages 227 and 228, Bottom of page 227, I'd always heard the ticking of the clock that counts down to the seconds, the seconds as we all get closer to death. Now I should see it's ticking as a countdown to the end of unjust suffering, right? So, um, I, I mean, that's a, that's, it's sort of a, a relief to think about, about heaven in those terms, right? Not just the end of my suffering, not just, you know, the, the bliss of being with God, of eternal blessedness, but the end of everybody's suffering, right? The end of the end of suffering. There will be no tears, no mourning, no weeping, right? It's the end of suffering. Um, so the so again the solution and it, that that reorients you too. So we don't have to we don't have to worry about we don't have to be anxious about the fact that suffering continues in this world. It's going to continue until the last day. We can do good by striving to to to, to uh, help those who suffer. But the confidence in the final end of suffering is in Jesus' sacrifice, and, and it's going to come on the last day. It'll be here. It's going to happen, right? Suffering will be over. Okay. Got any comments or questions?
So, what I want to do next is I wanted to spend a little time doing some Bible stories. Um, skip the second page and go straight to the third page, third and fourth page. In fact, if you want to rip those pages out so you can have them side by side, that might be helpful. This is John chapter 9, and I always think about this uh, chapter every time, that, every time that Jennifer has talked about, um, the, you know, like especially with the Pat Robertson stuff, the, the, the people in, in Haiti, was it Haiti or New Orleans, they sinned, therefore they were punished. Um, this is a great chapter for engaging that question. Now, the tricky thing is it doesn't give, it doesn't necessarily give sort of the nice clean-cut answers that we'd want, but it does give you, it sort of, it gives you a, a paradigm for thinking about your suffering and the suffering of other people and what God is doing with it. Um, so, and there's a lot going on here, so we're going to spend a little bit of time on this. And what, what we'll do first, um, this is what I do with the high schoolers. So it'll be an experiment in this new demographic. Um, we're going to read this. We're going to read this. I'll, I'll read the story, the whole thing. And what I want you to think about is sort of like think of, think of free association in, in, from the, in the Bible. Okay? So what do things that happen in the story, what do things that happen or things that are, like things that show up in the story, what do they remind you of? in the Bible, and other parts of the Bible. One of the brilliant things about the Gospel of John is that it is, it is an ex, uh, exquisitely crafted narrative, right? It's not just some dry history. John is telling the story in a particular way um, to, to teach us particular things about, about the Gospel and about Jesus. And the, therefore, it, it, it uh, behooves us to pay attention to the details, to the way that he organizes things. Things don't just happen sort of haphazardly in John. He highlights things, put, brings things to our attention on purpose because he wants us to notice them. And this is true, that one, I'll give you a hint, from the beginning of John. Do you remember how John begins? In the beginning, right? In the beginning, which reminds you of Genesis. Okay, so there you have a hint already at what John's doing. He's telling the story of Jesus as a new creation. It's, it's a story of creation told again. Um, and, and, and the question of what, the, the question to answer then, or the question to ask is, what's different this time around? Or what's changed? Okay? So that's, that's sort of the frame of reference to the whole book of John. Um, and we see that sort of on a micro scale here in chapter 9. Um, read the whole thing, then we'll go back and pay, a little bit more close, pay attention a little bit more closely. Um, the context is important. Uh, John chapter 9 comes, of course, after 8 and 7. And in 7, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. He does does this puzzling thing, which again is something for us to ask questions about. The beginning of John chapter 7, his brothers say to him, we'll go into Jerusalem. And he says, no, I'm not going to come. And then when they go, he comes, right? He shows up in Jerusalem, and he does all of these remarkable things. He, uh, the Feast of Booths had a number of components at this point that had sort of developed over time. One of them was uh, for the, during the festival, they would daily carry water from the Pool of Siloam up the Temple Mount, and they would pour out, pour out the water in, at or near the temple. Um, and Jesus stands up at the feast, and he says... If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Um, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Right? So there's this whole water ceremony going on, and Jesus stands up and says, I'm the water. Right? 
Um, later, he says the same thing about light in chapter 8. They, on, on one day of the festival, they would bring all these lights to the Temple Mount. And the stories from the early, uh, early Jewish writers, the beginning of the, uh, like of the first century, they say that, the, you know, no artificial lighting except for candles. The, lighting, the lights in the temple area were so, uh, there were so many lights that um, you, could see, you could see them from miles away, right? The, the Temple Mount was lit up. So Jesus comes and he's here at the, during the time of the festival and he says, I am the light of the world, right? So Jesus is, uh, is setting himself up to be the fulfillment of this, this festival, of this, this promise that God had given to the people of Israel that although they're dwelling in booths, in tents now, one day they would dwell in his, in his tent, in his tabernacle, okay? So we're, that's a lot of context. We're in this scene. Jesus is still there. He's, um, he, they were going to stone him because he said, uh, he told the Jews that they weren't good sons of Abraham and that they were liars and that they were children of their father, the devil. He said all kinds of nasty things about them. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, now chapter 9, okay? So follow along with me. I'll read it here um, and pay attention. <laughs> As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now you'd expect, sort of uh, interjection here, you'd expect a, a miracle story. That's the end of the story, right? Eyes are fixed. Everything's good. That's the whole point, right? Most of the story is what follows. Yeah. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. I think, that's, I think that is supposed to be funny. There is more, there's more humor to come. Just listen. It's great. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, 
For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and he said to them, and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Okay, so, uh, first things first. The, the story has a, uh, an overall overarching structure to it. And it's set up sort of like scenes in a play. And you can, if you think about it this way, you can kind of get a picture of what's going on. So the opening scene is the healing, right? It starts by healing. Let me write this down. So the opening scene is the healing. And now let's, in terms of, in terms of the, the, the actors, the characters in the story, the next section, verses 8 through 12, who, who are involved here? Who are the people involved here? The blind, blind, the blind man and his, yeah, the neighbors, right? Blind man and neighbors. Okay, the next scene, next chunk of text there, verses 13 through 17, who's involved there? The Pharisees and the blind man. Okay, number four. 24 through... Uh, 34. Yeah, the Pharisees and his parents. I'm oh, sorry, this is 18 through, yeah, 18 through 23. The Pharisees and the parents. What about parents selling their chaos? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and as a matter of fact, I'll clue you in something else. So th- there's, this, there's this overall structure, this sort of scene structure to it, but there's also um, a chiastic structure, something that looks like this. So we got A... At the beginning, A prime at the end. Maybe you remember this from literature, B prime, C. And you, you, you apply this structure to a text um, when, you, when you see things sort of repeated at the beginning and at the end. Um, and it, what it shows you that, is that what happens in the middle is also very important. And it turns out that the middle of this, this text is that section with the parents. 
the Pharisees and the parents, right? They are afraid of what will happen if they confess Jesus. In fact, that parenthetical verse, verse 22, really is sort of the center of it. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, right? And then that's what happens to the blind man, right? So while we have this, this, this structure here dealing with um, answering the question, who is Jesus, what's Jesus all about, another sort of underlying structure is the fact that the Pharisees are denying Jesus and they're going to, they're going to excommunicate anybody who confesses Jesus. Um, Pastor Nelson preached a sermon on Thanksgiving, which he, he this, the, the move that he made with uh, the, the man, the leper who came back and thanked Jesus was, uh, was life-changing for me. Because he answered the question, why, does, why did the one leper come back to Jesus to say thank you? And the answer was, well, when you're healed by Jesus, when you, something has changed, right, and you belong to uh, you, you, the, the community that you belong to is up in the air, right? Are you still with the lepers? Are you still with the Jews who need to make sacrifices in the temple? Or are you with Jesus? And that one leper who turns and comes back to Jesus, he's saying, I'm going to be a part of the community with Jesus, right? That answers the question, why did he come back? It's not because, it's not because he was more thankful necessarily or because he was a better person, but it was because he identified himself with Jesus, right? We see that same thing happening here with the blind man. So at the verse, verse 34, he's cast out of the synagogue. And what happens next? Jesus is, Jesus is there. You'll notice Jesus hasn't been there since verse, uh, what? Verse 5 or 6, right? So Jesus, Jesus is, uh, verse 7. He's absent from the whole narrative and he shows up again when the, the blind man is cast out of the synagogue and Jesus is there to receive him, right? So he's cast out and, and welcomed in by Jesus. Holly. Um, would he have already been cast out as a blind man, but then like, the only time he was able to go into the synagogue is now that he's received? That's a good question. I don't know if... So like he's, he's always known to be cast out because he's like a sinner? Yeah, that could well be. I, 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 that certainly takes it to another dimension, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 the, and then the contrast between his parents and him, right? So they fear being cast out of the synagogue. And this is what Jesus says, um, for judgment I came into the world. That word judgment, the Greek word is krisis, which is, the, we, we get the word crisis from that, right? So Jesus came to, to create crises about your identity, right? Who do you belong to, Right? Um, when, Jesus, when Jesus is here and when he acts, that's what happens, is he, he forces a crisis. Either you're, either you're with him or you're against him, right? Either you're a part of the synagogue or you're a part of Jesus' community. Jesus, who is the, the synagogue, um, the, ta- the tabernacle is, um, is where God comes to dwell, to meet with the people, right? The beginning of John says, and God be... The, the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, right? So we have this great juxtaposition between the synagogue, which is claiming to be the place where God is meeting the people, but it's, it's just filled with all of the corruptions of the Pharisees, and you've got Jesus, who is God meeting with the people, dwelling with the people, right?
Okay. There's so much going on. Okay. Uh, Pharisees and parents, let's finish this real quick. Uh, number five, verses 24 through 34. This is now the Pharisees and the blind man again, right? And then number six. Jesus and the blind man again. Okay. But I thought uh, the blind man is irritating the Pharisees. He's certainly not, not uh, trying to make friends with them, is he? Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> um, and it, it, and sometimes, you know, sort of like the emperor's new clothes kind of a thing, right? He's saying to them, you know, <laughs> isn't it obvious what's going on here? And there's this amazing transformation which takes place in the blind man. So, so from the beginning, he's just sort of a nobody. He's an outcast. Um, he's healed, and he comes back, and they say, what do, you know, what do you know about Jesus? And he says, I don't know. I got nothing. I don't know where he is. I don't know what's up with him. Then they ask him again, and he says, oh, he's a, he's a prophet, right? He's a prophet. Because I, I know that prophets do, do signs. They do the works of God, right? And then at the end of the story, um, Jesus says to him, believe on the Christ, right? The Son of Man. Believe in the Son of Man. And then the whole picture coalesces. It all comes together for him there. Okay. So now, why, let me just, just so that we keep our perspective here, because I could, I could talk about all these little things endlessly, um, but the, the, the question is, why are we talking about this in, in, in the context of Jennifer Fulweiler? Okay, so, the, so the, the original question is, what about suffering? What about people who are born blind, right? What, what is, how does that relate to, how do we understand that in terms of the gospel, in terms of salvation history, in terms of the work of Jesus? How do we understand that kind of suffering? Um, the answer right here is given. It's not because either he sinned or his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him, right? Now, the, at, at first glance, it, it, you know, it feels sort of like, well, Jesus is just using him as a pawn, right? But the, the bigger story, and the man understands himself as a part of this bigger story by the end, right? The bigger story is Jesus giving sight to the blind and not just... So, so his healing, his healing all of a sudden becomes insignificant for him when at the end he sees Jesus, the Son of Man, and believes in him, right? So it was, it was a blessing that Jesus gave him sight, but the, the work of God that he was doing, the work that God was doing through him was giving sight to those who are spiritually blind. So now... Um, John really wants to bring this to our attention. I asked you to, let, let, me, let me turn this over to you for a minute. What are some of the things that uh, appeared in this narrative that remind you of other parts of the Bible or other things in the Bible? Carol. Well, it's later, but with, with uh, Peter and, and John, afterwards when they healed, was he also blind? I can't I think he was lame. lame. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's right. That's right, and he, uh, yeah, he doesn't he fall down and try and worship them, right? And they say, don't, nope, nope. Yep. Krista? The man in the graveyard. <clears throat> the man in the graveyard. You know. The, with who's demon-possessed. Who's demon-possessed. Right. Was it a bit similar? Then he recognized Jesus. That's right. Yep, absolutely. That's right, and in his right mind. Yeah, absolutely. Psalms in, or is it Isaiah? It's probably Isaiah. Talk about Right. So Jesus all along is doing the things that Isaiah has prophesied about the, 
the, the, the suffering servant, the one who um, will come. He, the, you know, the, leap will, the, the lame will leap like a deer, the blind will see, and, and so on and so forth. So, it, it, and exactly. So the, the blind man here is, is you know, hitting the, the nail on the head that you see these things and you, you have to be a particularly hard-hearted to, uh, to deny that this man is, is doing the works of God. But let's think, let's think um, about the Old Testament a little bit more. Um, what it, is there anything that other parts of the Old Testament that you, you're reminded of? Guess what I'm thinking. Job. Job. How, okay, go ahead. How, how so? Yeah, you know, I'm actually um, <clears throat> he's about to have Right. And uh, then on the end. Um, but, but he always thought um, <clears throat> he believed always in God. Right. And uh, that took him, took him uh, to the end. Right, right, and and for him the question, the the, the question is ans- the question about his suffering is really answered, the same way that it's answered for the, about the man here who was born blind. Right, why did Job suffer? Not because he was a sinner, um, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Right. Um, yeah. Thank you. You thought of it. Okay. Great. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, so now here we have a great contrast. Think this is in this is in uh, in Kings. Um, do you know the story Elisha? And there's Naaman the Syrian, and he has a servant girl who was an Israelite, um, had been had been taken from Israel in captivity, and Naaman is struck with leprosy, and uh, the servant girl says to her mistress, "Why? You know, there's a prophet in Israel. You should tell your master to go to Israel." Naaman goes and he talks to the king. And the king says, what are you asking me to do? I can't do anything. You're just picking a fight with me. Um, but Elisha, I think this is how it goes. I get my facts mixed up. Elisha heard that this had happened, goes and says, Naaman, I can, I can make you well, right? And what does he tell him to do? Go, go wash in the, in the seven times, right? And what does Naaman say? Yeah, I could have done that. I could, we got better rivers back home in Syria, why should I do that here? And, he's, and uh, he starts to leave, but then his... Oh, let me look it up. His, yeah. Gehazi... Yeah, let's get, let's, get the, let's get the facts right here. Okay, okay. Uh, okay. Am I, okay, so the king says, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he was seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha heard, he tore his clothes and sent to the king, saying, Why? Nope, when he heard that the king had torn his clothes, he sent to the king and said, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came. Elisha sent a messenger to him. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored. But Naaman was angry and went away. Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God. Now, this is very interesting because when Jesus heals people all the time, he just says something, right? So why does Jesus tell the blind man? It's, I mean, a puzzling thing, right? Why should he have to go and wash in the river Siloam? Why doesn't Jesus, or in the pool of Siloam, why doesn't Jesus say, you're healed, right? Hang on to that for a second. Uh, Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? So he turned and went away in rage, but his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? 
So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. We have the arch book of, the, of this, this story, and it, it's uh, one of the great things about kids, little kids, is they see the picture, and of course the artists do this on purpose, but they see the picture of Naaman washing and coming up out of the water clean, and they say, he got baptized. And I'm like, <laughs> you are right. <laughs> he, got, he got baptized. But So now that, that image is in our head from the Old Testament, and that's what's going, that's the same, same thing is going on here. In fact, there's a, I'm going to inundate you with things about John now. Okay? There's sort of a, an overarching structure to the whole book of John with a center in the middle of it, kind of like this, uh, chiastic structure. But the corresponding section that happens earlier in John, the section that corresponds with John chapter 9, is John chapter 3, which is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus has this conversation with him where he says, unless you're born again, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you can't inherit the kingdom of God, right? So that's about baptism. John 9 is, is has baptismal imagery in it as well, right? So why does why does... The man needs to go uh, wash himself in the pool of Siloam. It's because, it's because what Jesus does for those who are spiritually blind is he washes them and he makes them clean and restores their sight. The same kind of thing is going on when he makes mud, right? Um, uh, it's, it sounds very similar to the language that's used when God creates man from the dust of the earth, right? So remember, we've got this new creation recreation thing going on. God creates man from the dust of the earth. Here, he takes the dust of the earth, the dust to which this man is bound to return, right? Dust you are, to dust you shall return. He takes it, he makes mud, he puts it on his eyes, makes him a new man, tells him to go wash, be clean, and then he comes back. Now, not only does he, this is, this is key, look at verse uh, 6. Not only does he put the, the mud on the, the man's eyes, but how does he put it on his eyes? With his spit, okay, perfect, which, is, which shows up in baptismal liturgies all the time, right? They, the pastors, we don't do this because it's, <laughs> it it's not socially acceptable. But you spit and you, you put it in their ears and you put it on their eyes, right? He anointed him. Right. Right, right. So he anoints him. Now, that may, and, and anointing usually is used to set somebody apart, some, something or somebody apart for a special purpose. But the, the, the real key here is that anointing, the word for anointing, krio, krio, sounds just like Christ. Of course, Christ means the anointed one. Okay? So here's what's happening. The man is born. I've I got to wrap this up. and I could go on forever. So the man, he's born blind. This is the thing that's, that's he's suffering in life. Right? Um, everybody wants to know whose fault is this? Why did this happen to him? The story is much bigger than that. Right? He fits into this bigger story. Right? Jesus heals him by telling him to wash, anoints his eyes, and then Jesus leaves the scene. Right? When Jesus le- so why is the pool, why does John tell us that the pool is called Siloam, which means sent? It's because when Jesus restores the sight of the blind, they are now, they are Christ's sent into the world to be witnesses to the, to the darkness. Right? We heard this at the beginning of John. John, again, this takes us right back to John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. 
Uh, three, all things were made through him, the word, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in darkness. How does the light shine in darkness? Not just when Jesus is here. In, for, in fact, Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But what, if, what, what about when Jesus leaves the scene, right? The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, right? So this man, now confronted by, the, by his neighbors and his Pharisees, he is... He is a little Christ. He is anointed. He is sent. He is the, he is the light to, to the dark, the light shining in the darkness. And even though the darkness, you know, casts him out, even though he's cast out of the darkness, Jesus receives him. Jesus is there receiving him. Krista. Um, <clears throat> I heard a pastor and he said that was, he, he believed that um, to go to the pool and wash right. the way to the pool was his belief. Sure, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he trusted... So why did he go? Why did he go when Jesus sent him? It's because he believed what Jesus said, right? Right? Um, and so again, the whole point here is... Um, it, all throughout the Bible, we are, we're, given, uh, we're given stories where the things that happen in people's lives are very important to Jesus. So the fact that this man was born blind mattered to Jesus. His suffering mattered to Jesus. But it mattered not just in the sense that Jesus was going to, to give him the temporal blessing of restoring his sight, but it mattered in the sense that this, this suffering and the resolution of this suffering, which isn't always in, this, in time, right? Suffering will be resolved in the end. Maybe, it's not, maybe not now. But that this suffering is, the work, is for the, so that the works of God might be displayed. And the works of God being displayed are sending his light into the world, right? It's us being little Christs, us being the anointed ones that, that witness to, to the gospel, right? Um, and so it's this bigger story, this bigger purpose, um, and th- th- this happens all the time in the Bible. That we, I, That's why I included these texts about uh, Hannah and, and Mary. I, we don't get to it. Um, some other time we'll do this. Um, I've, ta- I've talked about Hannah before. She prays to God in the temple that she would have a baby, God gives her a baby, and then she, then she goes and she sings this song. And the, this song is remarkable because although it has, it has something to do with having children, it has, it has to do with so many more things, right? She interprets her story as a part of God's larger story of salvation. So that at, in the end she says, The Lord will, will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. She, I mean, so, and, and, then, and then we get to Mary, who sings a similar song, and she's, she's no longer looking ahead to Jesus coming, but she's, t- she's singing about that anointed king who's now here, right? Um, we can, we'll do that another time. Um, I didn't mean to talk quite so much. I thought maybe that would be more interactive, but I got a little excited. So, do you have any, do you have any questions or comments? Okay, let's, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. We'll wrap things up next week.